You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Last week, we talked about that, I think. There were two aspects of wisdom. That is, uh, a wise person, according to the book of Proverbs, understands two things at once and knows how to balance those. And that is the goodness of God's creation, the fact that God created this world and everything in it, and there are a lot of good things, and there's an order to the way God created the world, and you want to go with the flow or the grain of the world. Otherwise, if you go against the grain, you get splinters. That's stupid, you know? And uh, a lot of people keep trying to create their own rules and set up and think they can create their own, uh, do what they want to do, and then choose the consequence they want with it, and it doesn't work. That's the created order. Then there's also the fact that the world is not just good and created, but it's also fallen. It's broken, and things don't quite work out the right way, and to understand that as well. So both the goodness and the brokenness of the world. When you understand those things and know how to balance those out, you have wisdom in different circumstances. But like I said, I think a lot of us, including myself, I'm kind of stupid at work. What I mean by that is I kind of expect to put about 90% effort in and get about 110% out. Have you ever done that? Yeah. Uh, I overestimate my contribution. I underestimate yours. <laughs> and that's part of being stupid. In college, I know, because I'm around college students, not all of them are like this, but so many of them I've had just in teaching as adjunct, is they really do about B-level work. And then at the end of the semester, they come and beg and cajole and try to get you to round up. You know, it's a little late, but that's kind of what we expect. Um, at work, we don't necessarily, you know, we just kind of punch in and punch out and kind of look busy, but don't get much done. And on the other side, I think employers tend to try to overwork their people. They underestimate what they get done, and they try to. So at the same time, they want to increase productivity among their employees. They also decrease benefits and push more work at them. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of being stupid. It's called killing the goose that lays the golden egg, if you've ever heard that story before. I want more out of you, but I want to give you less to do it. Anybody ever face work like that? All the time. So we're going to look at how unwise that is, but also how to approach work as Christians, as those who follow Jesus. What does it look like being wise at work? So let's look, first of all, at reading some of these Proverbs. And as we read them, let's pray before, okay? Lord God, this day is yours. We thank you for how you've uh, entered us into your presence. We pray for your presence right now that your wisdom would flow. Um, somehow through your word, you would get your work done in our lives, that you would make a difference in the lives of every one of us here today so that we have your uh, perspective on what work is all about and how we can glorify you in it. We pray, Lord God, today that you would teach us your wisdom in this new year so that this year of 2020 is a year of true insight and understanding, of uh, 
commitment to your causes and your wisdom, because we see there's a lot of foolishness in this world right now, all around us, dragging us down and trying to entice us. And we pray, Lord God, for that discernment this day. We lift up to you, Lord, the Christian church across southwest Florida, the many different churches, many different expressions of your goodness and grace, and we thank you for them, and we pray, Lord God, that you would work in their messages this morning, that through those who proclaim them, Lord, your truth, your love gets out and brings about a change in the hearts and lives of people as you intend, that your word does not return void, but accomplishes everything you want it to be done today. And uh, Lord, that starts right here with me. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, Proverbs chapter 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever works his hand will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. So from these Proverbs today, we're going to look at four points, and these are the goodness of work, the reason to work, reframing your work, and then redeeming your work, okay? So first of all, the goodness of work, and this comes in Proverbs chapter 10, where it said, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And right away, in a couple of these, you probably think, oh, it's all about being lazy. You know, lazy people are the problem. Well, th what's interesting is when I studied, what does this word slack hand, what does that adjective in Hebrew mean? I found the parallel passage that it's used in a couple of different places in Scripture, especially in Proverbs. It isn't translated lazy or slack, but it's translated uh, deceitful or even treacherous. So it's a deceitful tongue is how it describes, or a treacherous bow like a bow and arrow. And what it seems to mean, this Hebrew word, means whatever that object is, it's not working the way it's supposed to. So the bow doesn't shoot straight, it's a treacherous bow. The tongue doesn't speak truth, it's a deceitful tongue. And the hand that just looks busy is a slack hand. And you know how this works. People who look busy and get nothing done, you know, that whole um, sitcom, The Office, was all about <laughs> looking busy, just busy enough to get nothing done. So it's not that you're 
quote, lazy, but it is a perspective on work that work is a necessary evil, and I don't really want to work, and I don't like it. And so I do anything I can to just look busy enough to get my paycheck, but not actually put my heart and soul into anything and really care. That's the real issue. It's not about laziness per se, but about this attitude towards work in general. Now, the Bible has such an opposite view of work from that. I don't know if you realize this. The story of Scripture, kind of the grand narrative from Genesis all the way through into the New Testament, is so different when it comes to your tasks and my tasks compared to some of the other world religions that were at that time in the book of Proverbs. So, for example, have you ever heard of Pandora's box? Not the jewelry, but the actual Pandora. And um, in that myth, the Greek world looks at Pandora. Pandora was the first woman. Did you know that, according to the Greek myth? And she was, her name, Pan, means all, and Dora is gift. She was gifted with all things in a box. And she was told, don't open it. There's secrets inside. Well, you know right away what's going to happen, right? And so the Greek gods had given her this box with all these gifts inside of it or all these things and told, don't open it. She opens it, and as she opens Pandora's box, out comes all sorts of problems and evils and difficult things like decay and disease and conflict and work. Work comes out of Pandora's box. And so what she is saying, what the Greeks said is, the good life is a, jo a life without work. And I know our society, I think, thinks that too. A good life is a life without work. It's a life of the gods where they don't have to work. They don't face decay. They don't face disease. They don't face change. They don't face any hurt or any, all that stuff, and they don't have to work. But we get stuck because of Pandora with work. That's the Greeks' view of work. The ideal life for them would be one of total leisure and just chit-chatting all day about philosophy. <laughs> the opposite, or another culture, especially at the time of uh, Genesis and the time of Moses prior to that, is from the Sumerian mythology. Sumeria was prior to Babylon, okay, in Mesopotamia. And in it, there is a creation story called Anuma Elish, which I don't expect you to remember. It's just the first two words called um, When on High. And what happens is this huge, long poem talks about how, how did the world get here and why is it in the shape it is. And all these gods and goddesses in Anuma Elish we're fighting with each other from the beginning. So it's a power struggle. The whole cosmos is really just a power struggle, is what Sumeria believed. And these gods fought these gods. And finally, the earth is created almost as an aftermath of one god getting cut in half, the water and the, the land. And then out of that, then one of the great gods of that time, one of the high gods, Marduk, says he's going to create human beings. And this is what he says. He says, I will create Lalu, man, on whom the toil of the gods will be laid at, that they may rest. Did you get what he's saying about work? And what the Sumerians believed is, 
the gods, they're lazy. <laughs> they don't want to work. They don't want to do anything. They don't have to. But we are their slaves. And we are forced to work by the gods. And I think to this day, a lot of people feel that way. You know, you get in, if you get in charge in our society today, you push people around, get them to do your job. That's what leadership means to some people. I don't think that's biblical at all. I don't think that's the way it really works, but that's the way a lot of people think. Have you ever seen that? I'm the leader here. I get to decide and tell you what to do. Well, that's not the way. This, let's contrast this with the Bible real quick and show you how there is no other religion, no other faith, no other narrative that puts such a positive view on work like the scriptures, like the Old and New Testament. It's amazing. Okay? Especially in the book of Genesis. So what we have in the book of Genesis, the one true God works for six days creating the world, right? And at the end of this sixth day, in the evening, just before the seventh, he creates human beings. And there he gives them a garden, the best place for human flourishing. And in the middle of that garden, he gives them the task of cultivating, which is another word for making culture. That's where we get the idea of culture creation. So he brings them alongside as his partners and gives them a task to image himself, that is, to be his representative to this earth, to transform the earth to the glory of God, and he puts a positive spin on work itself at that point in time. God takes enormous delight in his creation. And what you notice is even in Genesis chapter 2, when the story of another story, like the second type of let's get now focused on the creation of Adam and Eve, you find out that God does manual labor. He gets down, it seems, on his hands and knees because he forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathes into him the breath of life. So there's no snobbery in the Bible about, oh, that's beneath my dignity kind of work. All work done to the glory of God is honorable and wonderful and filled with purpose and dignity. And then jumping to the New Testament, when God does show up in human form on planet Earth, he doesn't come like the Greeks would think as a philosopher kind of just telling other people how and reframing the world in philosophy. And he doesn't come like a Roman uh, general, what they might expect. And he doesn't come like an Egyptian, you know, pharaoh type. Do you know what he does? He comes as a carpenter. Isn't that fascinating? So God takes enormous delight in, the, in your work, in work itself. And he calls us to the goodness of his creation, to be involved in it and to do purposeful work. So whether you're digging a ditch or preaching a message, a sermon, it is spiritual work. 
It's material work and spiritual work at the same time. Whether you are changing a diaper or building a skyscraper or marketing a product, it can be spiritual work that is good. And here's the reality, too, that I don't think people recognize too often. But when you are cut off from meaningful work, when you cannot are, for whatever reason, or do not work, when you don't contribute, when, you don't, when it's just a paycheck and, and you're in this monotonous, you know, there's nothing to it, or you don't see the goodness in it, you're cutting yourself off from your own humanity and your human dignity of who you're supposed to be. Do you understand that? You lose your purpose and strength and direction, and it's just going through the motions, a slack hand. So there is a goodness to work. Now, the reason to work is next point. And this comes in Proverbs chapter 10, as verse 5, where he says, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in the harvest is the son who brings shame. And you might go like, well, here's a question. Why does it talk about being a son, like a relationship between a son and a father? Why didn't he just say, he who gathers in summer is a prudent person? And he who sleeps in the harvest is, you know, foolish. Because here's the reality of work that I don't think you realize. It's not just for you. Your work contributes to your community and is to contribute to your community. Because failure to work is not just personally, oh, it hurt me. It hurts us. And that's why the word shame is brought up here, honor and shame, or dignity, because the point is, there's a big difference between guilt and shame, by the way. Guilt is when I don't meet a standard, but shame is when I don't meet my community obligations. It's how it's affecting everyone else. So unlike what most people think today, the Bible encourages you to choose work that is actually helpful to other people. What a thought, right? You'll benefit from it to yourself, of course. And there's nothing wrong with, quote, making a profit. But what you're doing is actually beneficial for your community and world. You know? I think there's too many jobs now or too many products that are just being pushed to try to just make money. And we have forgotten that that's not the point. The point is to do something that actually contributes to human flourishing into God's wonderful world and to make a difference, a positive difference in other people's lives. And I know many of you have had those types of jobs. And I get that opportunity time and again. But that's true whether I'm making a meal or I'm changing a diaper, or I'm teaching a class, or I'm mowing the lawn, or I'm listening to someone, or I'm preaching a message. The real goal is not I'm doing it for the paycheck or the money I make out of it, but I'm doing it for others and for human flourishing. Dorothy Sayers, a British essayist, I think nailed it. And she said this. The habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about it instead in terms of the work done. 
To do so would mean taking the attitude of a mind we reserve for our unpaid work, our hobbies, our leisure interests, the things we make and do for pleasure, and making that the standard of all our judgments about things and people. We should ask of an enterprise, not will it pay, but is it good? Of a man, not what does he make, but what is his worth, work worth? Or of goods, not can we induce people to buy them, but are they useful things well made? Or of employment, not how much a week, but will it exercise my faculties to the utmost? Isn't that fascinating? I think we've forgotten that. So I've done this activity at FGCU. I brought it up a couple times, and it still amazes me um, because most of the students, it doesn't have to be at that college, anybody in the younger generation, most people now, I think, think this way. So what are they pursuing? What career are they trying to get? If it makes, and, and so the question I ask is twofold. What if you made the same amount of money no matter what you did? And, it's, and they go, well, how much? <laughs> okay, you know what their, their, their standard is? $100,000. Anything less than that, I don't know if I want to do it. <laughs> Which I'm going like, well, then that's my entire work life has been wiped out. <laughs> and most of yours, too. It didn't matter. You shouldn't have done that because it didn't make enough. OK, but 100000 So you make $100,000 no matter what you do. What are you going to do? And they go like, oh, well, in that case, I would pursue. Boom. And why? Because of how they have gifts in that area. It makes. And so then I ask, so what are you doing? What are you studying? Oh, I'm doing this over here. Do you understand? It's like this huge difference. And it's like, so you decided to go in this career path, not because you're just to make money. That's the only reason you're doing this. Isn't that fascinating? And it's dehumanizing. It's, you're a commodity. So I'm going to pick on you, Brianna. I think you're doing something not because of the pay, correct? She's working for a vow hospice. And um, I think the grief work that she's doing, et cetera, I, there's teachers here. You're not doing it for the pay, <laughs> correct? Actually, the majority of you here that I know, whether you're physicians, nurses, or whatever, you went into it not because of the pay, but because of the giftedness that God gave you and the purpose of making a difference in the lives of others. So the real question is, how do I glorify God and serve others? That's the work to do. Isn't that great? That's re, that is, brings us to reframing the work. Proverbs 8 says this. We read this before. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. And as we said last week, it is ama not amazing. It's, you know, duh. Uh, Wisdom is personified as a virtuous woman, as a female. <laughs> okay, women, you can go, of course. <laughs> and what she does here is she will not be cloistered in. She will not just stay at home. She will not just back off. But she gets right out in the midst of 
the public in a variety of ways. And so you see in this passage at the end, she goes beside the gates in front of the town. And at that time, the town had gates, which you had to pass through one way or the other. And the elders often sat at those gates. And they made decisions. And they had counsel. And that's where the justice system was done not in a court of law, but at the city gates. And so wisdom is saying, I want, I will not, God wants his wisdom to be involved in human justice, in actual social justice issues in our society, okay? And not to be backed off and to, and to allow that to be there. And then that passage will say as well, bring that passage back up again, Dan, okay? She goes also then, to, uh, to the crossroads, and she cries out. And there, that's kind of where the markets were often, where two different roads crossed. You put up a store. You sold your goods. God's wisdom, what is, ac- what is good, what is pure, what is true, is to be in the business places and not just like cloistered off to the side in your private life. And finally, on the heights of the town. Now, if you know... Um, ancient world, actually, it's probably true today. Any town, any city, the tallest building tends to be the thing you look up to. Now, in Greece, the Acropolis, what do they put on it? The temples, like the Parthenon and others. You know, these were their high ideals. In Jerusalem, two things that were right there next to each other on Mount Zion, the temple of God and the palace of the king. In our society, what's the tallest buildings? Yeah. Used to be probably a steeple in a number of towns. The steeple of a church was the highest point, but now they're dwarfed. Dwarfed. The tallest building are our financial centers because that's what we aspire to. What matters in the United States? Money. Profit. Individual and corporate, that's the only thing that matters. It's the economy, stupid, all the time. It's the only thing that matters. And so you need to reframe your work to understand you're always going to be fighting against the ideals of our society, what the good life is, what the right life is, with the way that you understand what life is about. It's not about the paycheck. If, you, if it's only about the paycheck, it's going to be drudgery. But if it's about the fact that God has so given you gifts to use in the workplace and everywhere you go to make a significant difference in serving people and glorifying him, then all of a sudden it all falls in line. Society will continue to scream that at you. But your purpose, your dignity, your community are more important than what kind of paycheck you bring home, how much money you have in the bank. Don't ever let your life be reduced to a dollar figure. This may not be the best example, but I think um, I'm not going to use a, quote, you know, pastory type example for this today, because I think it's a point. His life was messy, and yet... He found something more important than the money. And that's John Coltrane. I don't know if you know of him, a jazz singer and all. 
In his notes that he put on his 1957 album, he said this, during the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. And so from that point on, instead of just doing it because he liked it, doing it because it made money, doing it because of the prestige, he was now doing it to serve others. That's reframing your job. It's reframing your work. And finally, redeem it. Now, it might be better to say, receive the redemption for yourself and your work, okay? Because um, Proverbs, um, what we've looked at so far, I talked at the beginning about the two things that need to be balanced and understood, the goodness of creation and the fallenness of the world. Most of what we've talked about is on the goodness of creation and the goodness of work and how to see that and how you can, and the fallenness of maybe how society is pushing you. But now we have to understand work has to be redeemed too because it's broken. Work doesn't work. Have you noticed? How many of you, you clean your house, sit back, go, okay, that's done. I don't have to do that again ever. <laughs> Laundry. Yes, I just throw it up in the air like Mary Poppins. It folds itself and puts it in the drawers. Wouldn't that be nice? Do you remember that in the movie? Okay. It's like, oh, gosh, why doesn't it work that way? It doesn't work. It's broken. I keep having to weed the garden. I keep having to do the same thing over and over again. Things break down. They wear out. I don't work that well at times. I struggle with things. There's a brokenness to this world. And for that reason, I think a lot of people look at it and say it's pointless or it's not worth it or whatever. But I think they're missing the fact that it is redeemable the goodness of creation, and it is redeemed. So what's interesting is in the midst of the work that God did at the beginning, he creates Adam and Eve in the garden, and he places them there to image himself. What he has just done, he wants them to now respond to by cultivating the garden and by developing the garden and by, by just making this world a wonderful place. But instead, Adam and Eve decide, you know what? We want your power, and we want your stuff. We just don't want you. Thank you very much. They fell into the temptation, and the rift was brought about. And then God comes to them and speaks specifically to Adam in Genesis 3 and says this, Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Thorns and thistles. Work doesn't work. Things fall apart. Plans don't go the right way. We don't get the payoff we expect. We sweat and we toil, and then we sweat and toil some more. Is there a way out of the curse? 
And Genesis 3 points all the way thousands of years later, there's a promise in this passage that it was going to go forward to where a time where that curse would be paid for and taken care of, where there would be redemption. When God did show up, he didn't show up to tell us a few points about how to do a better job or to get a work-life balance. Jesus didn't show up to, um, to make us work smarter, not harder. He showed up to take the burden of work upon himself. And so that's why in Galatians chapter 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So we fail to do the job God gave us. Jesus comes and does it for us. And it is of no coincidence that when he is placed upon the cross, there is a crown of thorns that is piercing his brow. He wore the curse. He became the curse. He became our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus understands what drudgery feels like. He knows how work seems impossible, unending, and even pointless, because a... In the servant songs of Isaiah that foretell of Jesus' whole life, what the servant of the Lord is going to do, what's amazing in one of them I found is Isaiah 49, 4. It says I, that the servant says, I've labored in vain. I've spent all my strength for nothing in vanity. And just think about Jesus when he gets to the point of he's in the Garden of Gethsemane at his greatest need. He looks around at his disciples whom he has poured his life into for three years, done the most miraculous things around them, taught them, forgiven them, did everything he could to inculcate into them some sense of response. And they all flee. In vain, I've wasted my time. Yet surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Even when he is hanging on the cross and there is not a soul in sight outside of a couple of women, but they were even at a distance. Not a soul in sight that really was going to intervene or care for him in any way. And he was mocked and brutally just treated inhumanely. He commends himself still to his father and says, here I am. And God responds. It's fascinating in Isaiah 49 then. God responds to this servant and says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I'm going to make you greater than you ever expected. Because you're going to now bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isn't that amazing? How many times have you said, oh, this just seems like a whole waste? Well, guess what? Our God is a God of death and resurrection. He knows he's the way maker, the miracle worker. You know, he's the promise keeper. And he kept his promise in Jesus Christ to make a way for you and for me. He has redeemed your work. He has brought you to a point where you can Love your work. 
Because you're not doing it for the paycheck and you're not doing it to just do it and you're not doing it just because it has to be done, but you're also doing it in worship to God who has given you everything. And you're doing it in such a way that you've got someone that you're working for who doesn't treat you and run you into the ground and push you to do more, 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 more. He is a God who loves you, who has carried the burden himself. He is a God who says this, in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's the only boss I ever want to work for. And you can. In fact, you are. Anyone who trusts in Jesus, that's who you're working for. Don't ever let anybody, you may have this manager here and that customer there, but you're working for the one who has borne the weight of your sin. So don't be stupid. Don't see work as just something you got to do. No. Like we said at the beginning, there is the goodness of work. There is the reason to work. There's the reframing of your work. And there is redemption for all of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the wisdom in the book of Proverbs, but the wisdom that we find in the cross and the wisdom we find in Jesus. He is our wisdom and redemption and power and sanctification. And you are the way maker and the miracle worker. You are the promise keeper. That is who you are. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that regardless of the job and regardless of the minimum wage or whatever we're making, Lord, we can do all to your glory and people will see it. They will wonder why we're working so conscientiously, so faithfully, so, um, so, so, so much in such a way, not out of stress or worry or anxiety, but out of joy because we're yours. So we ask, Lord, that we would be your servants in such a way that, um, well, we would be your servants in such a way that other people come to know who you are through what we do. So I ask, Lord, for all those who um, tomorrow or the next day go back to their jobs. I pray, Lord God, that you go with them in such a way that something is different. I pray for all those who go back to school on Tuesday, Lord, that you go with them in that classroom because something is different. I pray that we would show and display how wonderful your creation is and how amazing your redemption is every day. Lord God, we pray this afternoon for the Franklin Graham rally and pray that you would use it for this community that you'd make a difference in the lives of people there, and that we here at Thrive, if given the opportunity to connect with anyone from that rally, Lord, that you give us a way to disciple and teach them a little more about your goodness and your wisdom. All this we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.